Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith, where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Welcome to yet another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. Welcome. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for subscribing. That is key. Key, key, key. Keyword, subscribe, please. If you like the show, subscribe. What a great guest. Steve Pavlina and I have known each other since 2008, 2009. I've gone to way too many of his workshops. Um... Uh, just because they're just so darn fun, and I can't stop going. So there's that. Uh, a bit of a personal development junkie I am. Uh, he is a blast to talk to. Um, geez, where do we start talking about Steve Pavlina? He's like still probably one of the number one personal development bloggers on the planet, or at least in the United States. His big thing now is he's all about travel. So... Um, I think it was sometime last year he started selling off most of his possessions. I think he's planning on selling his house. I, I have to catch up with him now. Um, but I know that uh, he's got this new rule about like if he can get a conference somewhere in Europe, he doesn't necessarily have to get paid to do that. As long as they pay for travel and accommodations, he'll do the actual conference or workshop for free without a speaker fee. So it's like... <laughs> will speak, will teach for travel. Uh, and I love that. That's really cool. Um, the other cool thing that I like about Steve is that at one point, a, a while ago now, um, probably like 2010-ish, he, um, he uncopyrighted all of his blog content. Um, so I thought that was pretty amazing. Um, and I imagine somebody as popular as him he was probably dealing with uh, a lot of um, copyright infringement stuff and maybe he just got tired of doing cease and desist, but that's not really what it was. He just authentically just wanted that blog content to get out there and spread and he was okay with other people making money from it and I think that's really cool. So uh, without further ado, my Vroom Vroom Veer chat with Steve Pavlina of stevepavlina.com. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Jeff. So uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on in Steve's world right now. Right now, I'm prepping for a new workshop. So that's going to be a lot of fun because it's a different type of workshop than I've ever done before. One where there's no pre-planned content whatsoever. Just going with the flow of inspiration all the way through for three days. Whoa. <laughs> does, it, <laughs> does it have a name yet? Yeah, it's called the Conscious Heart Workshop. Oh, the Conscious Heart Workshop. See, I, I, the, the H was out there in the world. I just uh, I hadn't heard what it was yet. 
I know some people were guessing. They were guessing health, health and, and so. I know somebody said hedonism. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a big hedonism. Yes, hedonism, yes. <laughs> That's not where we want to go, really. I don't You are in Vegas, so it would be apropos. That's true. For that type of workshop. That's a whole different kind of event. That's a whole yes. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. So conscious heart workshop. Wow. Yeah. You know, I'll probably be there. <laughs> I can't commit yet. Um, I've got like uh, three other things that I could potentially go to and I've committed to none of them. So at some point I have to, you know, as they say, shit or get off the pot and pick my favorite one. So we'll see. (laughs) Maybe you should veer towards the workshop. I should. Maybe I should (laughs) veer towards the workshop. So, okay. So you know, the show is uh, stories about moving from vrooming, which is like autopilot, sleepwalking, groundhog day, um, and maybe on the positive side, you just your your happy flow could even be looked at as you know, oh, you got this, you're really good at this, and you're vrooming through life. And then mm-hmm. a veer is when you know it's like an awakening or a change or moving towards the path with heart in your vernacular. So tell us a little, when, when I say that, what, what does it make you think of first off? Well, uh, one of the stories that comes up is just when I was younger and like in high school, you know, just eating a typical teenager diet and just getting into all kinds of, uh, you know, junk food, having sodas every day. Um, and like we all do. Not, yeah. And I, I was a straight A student at the time, but I was very much into my mind and I was pretty much ignoring the fact that I had a physical body at all. So, I, I, you know, really really wasn't into into health at all but it it was you know not something i cared about and as i got a little older and got into college i became more interested in in health and it started with just taking a nutrition class in school and so you know this sort of this sort of course change for me was instead of just going with that bad diet you know the standard american diet and just eating the same way all the time i got into you know going vegetarian uh, during college and then a few years after i graduated going vegan and then you know, experimenting with uh, raw foods over time. And I, I found that really that stemmed from being so bad off physically. I wasn't sick or anything per se, but couldn't do anything athletically. I always felt like my body was in the way of other things I might want to be doing. Like whenever I, w- I would have to go running in PE, I was always one of the slowest in, mm. in, my, in my school. I would always mm-hmm. come in like second to last right before the really overweight kid in our class. Wow. Right, <laughs> and, right. Okay. And I was, and I just I I wanted to get better at athletic things. I was never an athletic, you know, kid. I was the the nerd. And this school. happened to you uh, like well, while you were still like in high school or No, like when I when I got into college and I started oh, okay. you know, okay. I started getting a little older and I just so you got actually, all the way through high school and you were just like anti-athletic essentially. Pretty much. But it wasn't so much by choice. I just didn't know any better. It was, I was just, you right. know, as you, okay. as you call vrooming, yes. you know, with, yeah, yeah, with yeah. the habits I grew up with. So, right, right. you know, I, I just thought that was normal. Like that's how everybody is. And as I got older, you know, later in my 20s, mm-hmm. then I, 
I started getting more interested in like, hey, could I actually improve my body physically? Could I actually improve my capabilities? I wasn't into like weight loss so much or trying to impress other people. I just wanted to do it for myself. Like it was give myself a sense of accomplishment. And so I got into doing uh, martial arts. I did three years of Taekwondo. And it was really cool when I got good at it and I could actually spar. And I remember like the first class, I was just dying, you know, just trying to do five push-ups or something. And I, I was just terrible at it. And then, you know, after a time, I'm doing 30 push-ups and just blasting them out. And I lost like 15 pounds really quick. And it was really nice to be in that athletic phase and to have, uh, to have fun doing something intensely physical, you know, doing board breaks where the boards were held higher than my head. Uh, wow. And, and, you know, yeah. doing, doing board breaks where like, you know, you got two people holding boards with a jump, you know, you have to do a jumping back kick and it, through, <laughs> through, through two boards with the heel of your foot or running across the room and doing a jump flying sidekick through a couple of boards. You got to hit it right in the right spot. Yeah. Uh, you got to have uh, some high chi too. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say. And it was, it was neat. I remember during the 1990s, I would, I would, um, you know, collect these broken boards and they'd be like a, you know, uh, trophy, just p- piles of them on the mantle in my, in my apartment. Uh, Cause it was, gave me a, a cool sense of accomplishment and then getting the higher belt levels was really nice too. Um, and then later on I did a year of, of Kempo as well and learned different, um, you know, more hand techniques than foot techniques and, and did a lot of sparring there as well. Uh, Got injured a couple times, but nothing, nothing serious, like a split lip and stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, that was, you know, that was a lot of fun. And at that same, t- around that same time period, I also got into running and did did a lot of distance running. I ended up running the LA Marathon in two thousand. That was a really cool accomplishment to, you know, go back and reflect on how bad I was at running in high school. Like nobody would believe that I was, you know, somebody who could actually complete a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> so, so can you like reflect a little bit? Because that that's a that's a huge chunk of time. Right. Um, yeah. What I, now from your uh, memory as you were a kid, was that just totally vroom vroom? Or do you remember a time or maybe a condition that sort of like set you down that path of, oh, athletics is stupid. It's not for me. Can you pinpoint that or? You know, it was probably just something I picked up as part of my upbringing. Right. Uh, when, right. I, when I grew up, neither of my parents exercised. My mom was a college math professor. My dad was an aerospace engineer. It was a very mm. mental mental family to grow up in. Right. So, there, you know, I would shoot hoops in my backyard uh, or go bike riding. But my parents certainly didn't push us to do anything physical. We didn't have any exercise equipment in the house, really. Uh, there, you know, there's no t- uh, treadmill or elliptical machine right, or right. exercise bike or weights or anything like that. Uh, right, there was right. just no part of our house dedicated to exercise. No, that makes sense. It was just sort of, you know, there's the idea you could do sports. My parents signed me up for soccer when I was a kid, but I, I hated soccer. I did three years of it, and I sucked at it every year. <laughs> <laughs> Now, did you hate it because of the team aspect or the physical thing or both or? It depended. Sometimes, you know, it really depended on the coach. Like like one year we had a coach who was just very competitive and pushing everybody and I just, I didn't like it. Right. Uh, I can, I can relate to that. Other times we had a coach, but, but that was the winningest coach that I had. <laughs> and then sure. other times we had, we had a coach that was just more in it for the fun and right. didn't push us that hard. And then that's when we came that's in the dead t- last. <laughs> that's the typical soccer attitude. It's not about winning. 
Yeah. Which, you but, know, the competitive you know, people lose, hate. Yeah. When you lose every game, though, you start to wonder maybe we should train a little harder. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there should be, well, you know, some, something in between, you know, cause I understand it. And I guess kids do need that, that sort of like the world is competitive, get used to it sort of training, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, but at the same time, I think we've lost the kind of like good sportsmanship sort of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I was a kid, this is why I asked because, um, I had a big brother to look up to and, uh, while I was really young, well, I didn't like him. He picked on me. He was three years older than me, and he was like my nemesis. <laughs> I just, everything he was into and liked, I didn't. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and then uh, I also did like little kid, you know, seven-year-old uh, football, mm-hmm. Went, the Pop Warner football. And... Uh, and I was just really super afraid to play, if that makes any sense. Because yeah. I thought it, it was so much information, I had no clue what to do <laughs> if they put me in, you know? So mm-hmm. I, if they did put me in, I just like, they put me in on defense and I would run at the guy with the ball, <laughs> mm-hmm. regardless of what, what, what I was supposed to do, you know? Uh, and if somebody would have an adult, I ended up quitting. Because I couldn't handle this, like, I don't want to play because I think I'll just screw everything up. You know, mm-hmm. And if somebody, an adult, had come and say, look, you're eight, just go out there and have fun, you know, that would have been, I would have, you know, I could have, oh, yeah, okay, all right, I'll just do my best. Is that okay? Yeah, all right. You know, then I would have, I would have kept playing, I think. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen, but, you know, anyway. You know, I think one you know, in answer to your earlier question, another way of thinking about it is one way I grew up was thinking of physical fitness in terms of infrequent sports participation, because that's what I learned from, from school. Like you go, you know, you have PE for us, it was maybe two or three times a week, we'd have PE classes and you just do it for half hour, 45 minutes or whatever. And you're, you know, you're done. And that's your, that's your exercise for the week. And then in, in college, unless I was taking a, a some kind of physical PE class like tennis or something, then there's no real demand to exercise. Right. Uh, so, so it was, it was thinking of of exercises as something you do infrequently. Even when I was doing soccer, we'd maybe just have two practice sessions a week, and you know maybe three if there was a game coming up. And so in, instead, later in life, I realized that you know taking care of your physical body requires a much bigger commitment. Yeah. And so I. I started setting much bigger goals for myself and main, ma- making my own training programs. I remember in 1997, I set a goal to, at the bare minimum, to exercise uh, aerobically for at least 25 minutes every day that entire year. That was my New Year's resolution. Wow. And, and I, I kept it up for that whole year, even when I got back like 2 a.m. and I was dead tired and I was sick and it was raining outside. I still went out running and did it. And it was really cool just to know that I could make a big commitment like that and do it. And at Mm. the same time, I was also doing um, Taekwondo, hour-long Taekwondo classes and occasionally going through uh, testings. That was like two or three classes a week uh, on top of that. And those were pretty intense classes. But during that year, I got in such great shape and I noticed it benefited me mentally too. My mind was really sharp. I was doing a lot of computer programming work at the time and I could just think really clearly. I had a higher metabolism, lots of energy. And so I realized that, you know, the types of standards we're often taught growing up or that we pick up from other people around us or that we set in school 
it's they're just really low. <laughs> we think of them as adequate, <laughs> but they're if right. you think about it, it's really pathetic. You know, you probably go through something like you know basic training in the military, and it's like way higher standards than what what people are you know used to yeah. before that before they enter an environment like that. And I found that just you know being associated with a a, a martial arts studio, it really got me into an environment hanging around people who had way higher standards for their physical fitness than I did. Um, and I, I liked the, I liked the fact that it was based on being able to do something with your body, like functionally. Some people are, some people are really into making their bodies look good. Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter as much to me. Um, it's fine if that's what, you know, that's what's important to other people. But for me, I cared more about like being able to have new skills that I couldn't do before. Like being able to fly across the room and, and slam my foot through a board. That was really cool to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, I'm with or you. Just, yeah. Or just being able to like do, you know, do certain kicks. Like I remember one of the hardest ones to to learn was a spin hook kick, you know, where you're like turning around backwards and spinning your 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 leg up in the air, you know, like Van Damme style or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 you know, being able to do a board break with your heel, you know, that somebody's holding behind you that you can't even see. So you got to really have a precise feeling of, of where your foot is at any time. Mm. And I never grew up, never grew up with anything like that. And just being able to have that kind of skill of like knowing your body so much better and, and what you're capable of. For me, that was so much fun. That was so much more rewarding. Yeah. And I know like, um, I think one of your blog posts, it maybe wasn't titled it, but like, um, was if when in doubt of what to work on first, you say start with something physical. Um, <laughs> and I, it seems to me like when you get out of your head, well, when you, you pick a physical goal, you know, whatever it is, I want to like walk for lunch, you know, if you start simple or, you know, mm-hmm. I want to do a spinning back kick, you know, whatever it, mm-hmm. it, you have to experience that. I mean, you can practice in your head, but eventually you're going to actually have to move your body and do the thing. Mm-hmm. And nothing gets you out of your head more than that, right? Yep. I also find it's a lot more motivating to set fun goals physically versus, um, you know, a lot of so many people set weight loss goals, but then they find them really boring and they don't actually work on it. Right. Uh, right you know, right. I, I want to lose ten pounds or twenty pounds or thirty pounds, and then they don't actually do it. And uh, but if instead you set a goal that's uh, you know feels like a fun challenge to stretch for you and it has some kind of meaning, whatever. For you, yeah, whatever's. Meaningful to you is the important key. Yeah. Like, can you set a goal to eventually be able to run for 90 minutes straight without stopping, you know, at a good, at a good clip and keep your heart rate up? Uh, you know, that's something that's kind of, uh, be a stretch for a lot of people. Many people don't exercise regularly be dying after 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, if you, you know, if you find intrinsic value in that, like knowing that you can go out any morning and just run for 90 minutes, it really changes your, your sense of self. It changes mm-hmm. your self-esteem, the way you think about yourself, to know that there are these goals that you can set and accomplishment, accomplish. And even if you slack off from that, you still know you can go back to those goals. So one of the reasons I recommend starting with the physical is that it's a good way to not to, not to delude yourself because your physical body is a, a, is a great source of, of measurement. It gives you you know, honest feedback. In other areas of your life, you could set really vague, fuzzy goals and think you're making progress, but your physical body can tell you, you know, how far you ran. You know, you can use clocks and timers and, and, and your measurements. It's very objective. Yeah. Ex- exactly. Um, it's a good place to start. You know, can you do a certain move or not? You know, like. Yeah. It's very it's, binary. Yes or no like, sort of measurement. How many, how many push-ups can you do? You know, count them. It's uh, how flexible are you? You know, what, how, 
how close can you, know, can you bend over to, to touching your toes or, or uh, doing the splits or whatever it is you want to do. Uh, your, your body also is great for seeing progress because even after just a week of doing something, you're going to start seeing progress. And so it's, it's very encouraging. And it's a great way to see that working on your own personal growth makes a difference, that it actually matters when you consciously direct your efforts at something new. And in my experience, it spills over into other areas to work on. Like, oh, yeah. 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 And not to mention that getting your body in better conditioning means that it's going to benefit you mentally, emotionally. You'll, you'll be happier. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a great book uh, called Spark by Raddy and Hagerman. And it's, uh, it's basically about the mental benefits of cardio exercise and showing how you know, how uh, daily exercise is, is really helpful for rebalancing your brain and the way it thinks. It rebalances your hormones, your neurotransmitters, uh, sort of like a garbage collection that goes through, cleans everything out. And I, I often notice that when I slack off of exercise, my thinking is fuzzier uh, and I'm, you know, not as clear-minded. Cranky, uh, I, moody. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I've, been, I've even been using a, a sleep tracker application for my iPhone. Right. So you can Check the quality of your sleep. It measures, you know, um, how like long it, you're in REM, how long you're yeah, delta. right. And it, t- it tells that by like it, it uses the accelerometer in the phone to tell when you're moving and around in bed. Oh and wow! So, and so it can know like when you're mostly awake, and and uh, it also has an alarm to wake you up at the best possible time, so you're in the lightest level of sleep, so you're not a total zombie. Oh, you don't you get up, up all but groggy. That's pretty cool. Exactly. But then it has, it has charts, you know, after you've done it for several days, it can give you graphs and things and it can associate with other things like it measures your activity. So I can see that like the more activity I do each day and it'll measure like how many steps you've gone, like running or walking, the better my sleep. I can also see that I sleep better if I get better night's sleep. If I go to bed at say 10 PM as opposed to midnight. Mm. It shows, so tell us, so tell us the problem. name of this app again, because I want to download it. <laughs> it <it's>, yeah, <laughs> I think it's called I think it's called Sleep Cycle. Oh, okay, nice, Sleep Cycle. Like ninety nine cents in the app store or something like that. Okay, well, I'm I'll check a, it out, and I will. Silly or anything, I just like that. No, app. no, yeah, yeah. I, I just I want to try it out because I've heard other people talking about these apps, and I think there's like a dedicated device that actually costs money, 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 not 99 cents. It's in, in the idea is to do the same thing. I heard about it. I think from Tim Ferriss's podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah, that I was, uh, I was going to say that, um, I found like whenever I'm like, you know, really, really stuck or in a low point, and, and, and if I start journaling and I start asking my questions, how's my diet? Oh, shitty. <laughs> you know, how much am I drinking? Way too much. You know, am I, am I using tobacco? Uh, yes. <laughs> how's my sleep? Really crappy. Are you exercising? No. You know, so as you, as I've, you know, when you start cleaning those things up, you know, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a break from alcohol for 30 days. It's, it's just off 30 day challenge, no booze. You know, yep. how much, how much better do you feel just waking up? You know, oh, it's great. I don't want to drink anymore. <laughs> you know, eventually I'm sure I will go back, but you know, that's, uh, it really just changes everything, you know? So I love starting with the physical. So let's talk about a story where you were, um, you said when you were younger, um, not only didn't you, you didn't like, uh, speaking or public speaking, um, you're like, uh, I think that's still like the number one fear 
uh-huh. uh, at least in America. But anyway, uh, when you were younger, you uh, you had a phobia of, of public speaking. Oh yeah, um, and talk talk a little bit about you know what that was like. What was that vroom vroom situation? I mean, <laughs> did 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 you were you ever forced to do it? Oh, all the time in my in my grammar school. We had a mandatory speech contest every year, like starting, you know, with the first grade and the first grade, you know, what, what you're like seven years Six old or, or seven. And yeah. You've got to do a speech contest. Wow. At age, it's like a nursery rhyme or something you're doing <laughs> right? Uh, or some, some kind of mother goose story, you know, it's, and you get up and you do this like one or two minute thing in front of the class and then everybody claps, but it's like, it can be terrifying, you know, to start that young, trying to get up in front of an audience. And so I, I found that every year the speech contest would come up, like I would dread it like a month in advance when I'd see it on the calendar. I was like, oh no, the speech contest again. <laughs> and no matter, no matter how much I'd prepare, I'd get up in front of the class and I would just flub it and my hands would shake and I'd be so nervous and I'd be just like shaking my head as I went back to my seat. And I'd, you know, if I was lucky, I'd get a C or something. <laughs> so they you were, just they like, graded too. just hated it. Yeah. And the the worst part is I was good friends with like the best, uh, the, the best guy in our class who was always winning these speech contests. Like every year he would just kick butt on them. And I didn't understand like what he was doing because when I'd hang out with him, he'd seem totally normal. And you put him in front of a group though, in front of the class. And he was just amazing. You know, I was like, <laughs> how could he, how could he do this? Like, where did you get this talent from? Right. And, and it just, it seemed to be like he would practice a good bit, but it didn't seem like he was practicing that much more than I was. But I, I, I think one of the difference was, differences was, is that he was just himself. He was calm in front of the class. He wasn't crazy nervous like I was. And I just didn't understand how that was even possible. <laughs> Because uh, cause it was a totally subconscious reaction. As soon as I'd hear my name called, or even before that, I'd be like, oh, <laughs> just start shaking and get all nervous and, and stuff. And it's, right. you know, it's a very common fear. Um, right. So I was, I was just, uh, you know, really bad with it. I had to do a little public speaking in college, and I got a little bit better at it. But I'd still be pretty nervous, you know, and I just, I wasn't that good at it. I didn't really know how to do it all that well. So what did, was it a conscious veer? Did you decide at some point that you wanted to, you know, consciously turn or veer towards enjoying it, enjoying public speaking? Um, or was it a more challenge? It wasn't like that right away. It was more of a challenge at first. It was, you know, I got through this phase, I got into this phase where I was really into facing my fears and I wanted to do something I was afraid of. Okay. So, so it actually happened because when I was working, um, in the computer gaming industry, I would get occasional invites to speak at a tech conference or a software developers you know, event or a computer gaming um, conference. So I, uh, like the, the GDC, the Game Developers Conference, which is pretty popular, I'd get an invitation to you know, go moderate or host a roundtable discussion there. And you know, at that point, the fear began to subside because I now it wasn't like this forced speaking that was assigned to me. It was something that I actually enjoyed and had reason to want to do. And I found that there was benefit in doing like, hey, if I could get good at this, it could actually matter to people. I could help moderate a cool discussion or I could share some information to people. Mm, and, and, right, right. Okay. And it, it was probably in the late '90s or early 2000, you know, maybe around 1999 or 2000 that I did one of my one of my first of those types of events. 
And it was just like being on a panel with four other people. And I was sitting down behind a table with a microphone in front of me. And it was, it was cool. It was pretty easy. And I shared a bunch of knowledge. And then people came up to me afterwards. And they were asking me questions or telling me, uh, you know, thanks for sharing that information about how you run your business. It was really helpful. And so I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. For the, for the first time ever, there was actually a reward to doing public speaking. That, that it actually mattered to somebody other than like it's being graded and you know for, for, for a class class assignment uh, or or it's it's a competition to see who's the best and you know you're gonna lose <laughs> so, so, so you know you have no chance so why bother and it's very disheartening to enter a competition where you just feel like you have zero chance of you know even placing going into why it. am I even here <laughs> yeah like what's the point you know, what's there's 40 the point? K- there's 40 people in this contest in my class and I'm there's no way I'm getting in the, you know, even the top 10. So forget it. <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> like, what is, the, what is the point? I'm going to be in the bottom 10 no matter what. So <laughs> we'll just settle for that. And we can talk a little bit about uh, the introvert extrovert thing because it, it's sort of like, I'm, I'm assuming you grew up uh, calling yourself an introvert then. Yeah. Or at least that's what I was labeled. Right, right. Well, well certainly. Yeah. As a kid, I was actually pretty shy. Uh, didn't. You know, I, I would have like one or two close friends a lot of the time. And then as I got into high school, I gradually became more extroverted. Uh, I think it's partly because I went to a high school which was very academic focused. And so being good at academics actually didn't make you an outcast. It made you uh, more popular. A little bit more a, of in, a rock in star kind of. In a, in a way, yeah. It was, yeah. A, it was a very like college focused university, I think uh, – uh, 98% of our graduating class went on to college okay. afterwards. Gotcha. So it was, uh, you know, that kind of focus really made a, a difference. And um, that that helped a lot. By the time I was a, a senior in high school, I had a group of like a dozen good friends that I would hang out with all the time. We would call ourselves the group. And we would, you know, <laughs> we would go to, you know, all, all kinds of things together. We'd go to Hollywood and see movies together. And uh, I remember we went to Six Flags, Magic Mountain, all as a group of 12 and just, you know, hung out there. So it was it was, uh, you know, a gradual process of uh, of unfolding there. Yeah, you know, it's weird because I came out of the womb like, like a, an attention whore. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. I mean, you look at me like really, really young pictures of me. I'm like standing in front of the camera with my arms up in the air, going, "Look at me!" <laughs> it's so weird, and I have no clue where that comes from, you know, and there's a lot, there's a lot of theories about, you know, the youngest of three birth order stuff. Those are usually your, your attention horrors. And, and then if you believe in astrology, Gemini's are supposed to be very, you know, affable and out there, you know, it's that, where's that come from? I have no clue. (laughs) There's also, there's also some research I read about recently that that's uh, indicates that, uh, kids that are more, um, sensitive to stimulation are more likely to be introverts as if, you know, the stimulation gets a bit overwhelming, but then the extroverts find the stimulation, um, not as intense. And so they can handle a bit more stimulation. That makes sense. Uh, living in a way that puts them in a comfort zone of their own stimulation, whereas the introverts need a much lower level of, of stimulation, especially social stimulation to feel comfortable. And I'd say that was definitely true of me as a kid. You know, I would find certain social situations just a bit too overwhelming, like overstimulating. And I'd need to get away from it and have some alone time or, or I usually would just like hanging out with a smaller group of friends. Yeah. And that's paradoxically or, you know, yeah, I guess, you know, 
when I go to workshops or networking events, I do get that overwhelmed feeling and I need to go escape and hide. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the energy is just of the room and say the hall uh, mm-hmm. is just way too much. You know, part of me wants to run out there and play (laughs) and I do. And then I'm just like, oh, now I need a nap. (laughs) It could also be the type of stimulation. Right, 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 right. I I think as I got older, I became a lot more comfortable with, you know, different levels, higher levels of stimulation. And so, you know, doing like the, uh, the game developers conference and the software conferences I would speak at, that became more my comfort zone the more I did it. Like I can handle that type of stimulation. Uh, I got more and more comfortable in that environment. And, and then um, a few years later, after doing that for a while, I got into doing uh, Toastmasters, which was kind of scary at first to join. But then I got the hang of it. And I was, I was in that for, I think, six years Wow. Um, and, and did a bunch of speech contests and that was really cool. Um, you know, like stretching myself to do something I was just not very good at. And I, I basically got better just by continuing to set different stretch goals for myself. Like your first goal in Toastmasters is just to get your first speech under the way, which is only four to six minutes mm-hmm. and you can use notes. You can get up in front of the room and read the whole thing. Basically, no matter how you do it, you're going to get a bunch of applause because right. Toastmasters is extremely encouraging. Uh, it's all about helping people get better. It's not sure. uh, you know, about judging you or beating you down. It's, it's all about you know, start where you are and see how much you can improve. Yeah. Uh, and so I found that environment really encouraging and then you know, gradually stretched from that and and uh, eventually joined the National Speakers uh, cha- National Speakers Association Las Vegas chapter for a while, and did a talk there. I did an all day presentation on blogging there, and you know it's like a very gradual process over a period of years, starting with a five minute speech and getting comfortable doing seven minute speeches. You know, having bigger audiences, like getting an audience of a hundred people, uh, doing that kind of thing again and again, building up to. Uh, 20 minute speech, 45 minute speech, 90 minute talks, doing a bunch of those. And then from there, jumping to an all day presentation, um, you know, do it, trying different things, learning storytelling, learning to do humor when speaking, uh, put it, you know, doing PowerPoint, uh, just so, so many different skills that go into it. So how much, how much prep time would you say you put in before you had the gumption to set up your first workshop? How long the f- were how- the first Oh, you mean like in terms of speaking? Yeah. Or or just yeah, to prepare yeah. for that one event? No, in terms of, you know, developing your speaking and and, and uh, so how long oh, were okay. you a in, f- in Toastmasters and, and NSA? Oh, uh, almost almost five and a half years. Before. Yeah, to go from like a five minute speech up to like a three day workshop where right, I right. do all the all the content my you know, yeah. myself pretty much. Yeah. And that workshop was also based on my book. And just to prepare for that workshop took me a full month and it was, you know, based on the content of a book I'd previously written. So it was a lot of, a lot of prep time. Right. And I I remember in, uh, but you had worksheets and handouts and it Mm -hmm. was like hugely dense content. Yeah. There was a lot of, a lot of content in there too. Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, It was really, really packed with material. Right. Um, but now, you know, like I remember in Toastmasters, like to prepare sometimes a five minute speech would take me two days (laughs) <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, like one day to really write it and edit it and get it just right. And another day of just full rehearsal and practice. And I would memorize them like word for word sometimes because wow. I did, I was so uncomfortable speaking off the cuff. I would just have to know everything I was going to say, every word I would have to have it memorized. I have to tell the story now. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, 
I'm going to have to get to the point. Okay, I'm editing now. So I was in uh, high school and I was in uh, a business education club. Okay. And, uh, and I was, um, we were going to the regional, the regional competition. And I was on, I was on a team for computer aided graphics. And this was in the late eighties. So it was like that black and black and white, um, early stage Macintosh computer that mm-hmm. I had used, but there was no, so I was on a team and we, we had a submission, but there was no regional competition in our region for that. But I got to go along to regionals anyway, but I had absolutely nothing to do. So the mm-hmm. teachers made me sign up to, to take something just to go to regionals. So they signed me up for a math test. And I'm not into math test at all. And I was really mad. I was like, you could have signed me up for anything and you signed me up for math. <laughs> I'm going to look like a total idiot, right? And, uh, and there was another guy and he was equally pissed because somebody had signed him up for extemporaneous speaking, right? Mm-hmm. So we were on the bus together and we were like, let's trade. <laughs> so he took the math test and I pretended like I was him and did this extemporaneous speech. And we both won. <laughs> and then we admitted it to, to our teachers, like right in the nick of time, they were about to announce us as, as the other person as winners. <laughs> well, hilarious. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I, I, yep. I was really good at it. I used, I used Go ahead. Oh, I, I used to be so bad at extemporaneous speaking. I mean, just absolutely horrible i would just flub it if i had to do it i remember you were just too in, nervous I, yeah i remember when i was in high school my senior year in high school was the first year our high school competed in the academic decathlon which is sort of this event so you compete with a whole bunch of different schools and you send a bunch of students from each school and i was the captain of our team the first year we were doing it uh and there was this speaking thing that everybody had to compete in where you had to do i think one was a prepared speech and then another part you had to do an extemporaneous speech they would give you a topic or ask you a question and you had to just go for a few minutes and i thought oh man that was the one part of the whole academic decathlon i really really dreaded <laughs> It made me so nervous because I felt like I couldn't really prepare for it. I mean, we we were practiced for it, mm-hmm. but I just felt you can't uh, really practice for yeah. Other than just you know, you know, be cool and you know, and if you're not cool, then it's not going to work. <laughs> yep. And I did it, and I knew I flubbed it, which kind of sucks because then it drags the team down a little bit. But right. we, we did we did at least return with some medals, which was really cool. Actually, won first place in geography. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I didn't expect I would be in the first place in that, but I was like, okay, great. Sometimes you find talents you didn't know you had. So let me ask you, because I was at your first workshop and it seemed like you were really comfortable. Were, was, you, were you freaking yeah. out or? No, I wasn't freaking out. By that point, I was pretty comfortable. In fact, I got increasingly comfortable as the event went along because by that point I had already done a bunch of sp- speaking. I'd spoken right. to a couple different chapters of the National Speakers Association. And that's what would make me the most nervous is like speaking in front of a group of other professional speakers. <laughs> right. Because uh, right. they're really going to give you some feedback. Yeah. But speaking at, speaking at that first workshop, it was like one of the most supportive audiences I could possibly hope for. Right. And it was they just, were your uh, people. It was, right. 
Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And if anything, I probably went into that event overprepared because I'd never done a full three-day event before. And so I wanted to be extra, extra prepared. So I, I went in really well prepared, knowing like every little segment I was going to talk about. And I, I, I learned over time that I, I can loosen up a bit on that. It's uh, more fun. A for little? Me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess it depends on how you say it. But uh, it's more fun for me now, you know, now that I got more and more comfortable. Um, and for me, that was the key, just getting comfortable on the stage where you feel like it's as comfortable as if you're having a conversation with your best friend, uh, being up on stage in front of an audience, even if you don't know all the people there. Uh, and when I had that level of comfort, then I found I could just be more conversational. And events and workshops and speaking engagements would work better that way because now I'm not stuck in my head thinking about what I'm going to say or peering over my notes all the time and trying to stay on track and watching the time. And, you know, it's like there's a lot going on if you're, if you're trying to speak from this preset bunch of content and you've got to get it all in on time and tell all the stories in the right order and make the points in the right order. And it's tell too much. Con- it's too tell much. Conclusion. It's too it's much a, for your CPU. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you need your, your whole brain. Yeah. And so what you're not doing at that time is you're not paying as much attention to the audience then. You're not listening to them. You're not looking at them and seeing how they're reacting. Uh, it's almost I, like you're just wanting to be present. Exactly. And yeah. so when you're present, it's very different because now – Instead of trying to spit out your content that you have stuffed into your mind. Right, right, right. I have to say the script. (laughs) And and cram it down their throats regardless of how they're receiving it and just keep cramming it until you're done. (laughs) Now it's more (laughs) about listening and responding. It's more conversational. And even if – you know, you're the speaker doing most of the talking. The audience is still communicating with you all the time. Right. You know, you, you look at them. You could see: Are they engaged? Are they uh, Are they smiling? Are they laughing? Are they just kind of looking bored? Are they falling asleep? You know, there's all kinds of signals you're getting. Do they look confused? <laughs> Somebody, uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Who's and, hitting on who? <laughs> exactly. And so I, I learned to have um, so much fun with it. And now I'm finally, um, you know, going after one of the goals I, I thought about a number of years ago. I probably conceived this idea for uh, doing this type of workshop uh, maybe around 2012, which was to do a workshop where it's just three days all the way through being spontaneous and inspired. It doesn't mean there's no content because my mind is stuffed with years of lots and lots of personal growth content. It'd be no problem for me to just get up and speak extemporaneously for three days straight. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, could, I could just go for 30 days like that if I had to. So, you know, knowing what to say is not the issue. It's not, it's not a matter of needing to cram more information into my mind or structure it a certain way. Um, now it's taken on a whole different flavor for me. Um, it's, it's about exploring a whole different type of speaking where it's more about listening and being present and responding to what's coming up and also co-creating the whole event, the whole experience with the audience instead of arriving with a preconceived set of notion and my plan and my control strategy for the whole event of how it's going to turn out. And your workshops aren't like a typical workshop either because um they're all like they have this element of okay we're going to sit and and be basically in receiver mode mm-hmm. um but then that is that's going to be um combined with phases where you're like you're going to set up a little breakout you know okay so get together with four of the people and work on this you know mm-hmm. for 10 minutes. 
And then, and then that, that is repeated. And then you also do the, let's get everybody together and do this fun thing in the room. That's uh-huh. another thing. And then there's the other thing where you go, okay, let's get everybody and go out of the room <laughs> and yeah. go experiment in, you know, this casino or out on the, whatever they call that in downtown, yeah, d- downtown Las Vegas, downtown like Las Vegas Fremont or, Street. or on the Vegas strip or on the strip. Yeah. I, I made a list of like the different modes of, you know, I, I can use in a workshop for sharing material and, you know, or, you know, um, having people do activities. And it was like, I have a list of like 14 different things. Wow. You know, you, you can basically lecture, you can, you can tell stories, you can have people get on one-on-one conversations. You can do group conversations or group activities. You can do games. Uh, you could get up and leave the room. You know, there's a whole bunch of different ways that people can learn it, learn content. And it's, you know, I found that when I'm sitting at events, uh, from other, that other people are doing, and we're just sitting down listening for three days straight, it gets really tiring. And yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of different modes of, of presenting and you don't have to keep people stuck in their chairs all the time. And, you know, if I'm stuck in an event and it's three days of solid lecture, it gets a bit tiring and it's nice to get up and move around now and then, or, uh, you know, isn't it nice to meet some of the other attendees there? Yeah. So I, I, what surprised me is at my first workshop that I did in 2009, uh, it surprised me how much people in the room enjoyed getting to know each other, like how, uh, how many friendships were, were, were born there and how right. you know, those, that was, um, I guess five and a half years ago. And people from that workshop are still friends with each other. Oh yeah. As, as you can well attest. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and they, you know, they still hang out together or connect on, on Facebook or, you know, it's, it's really cool to see that there was this whole community that formed around it. Uh, and, and that's not something I own or control. It's just a cool thing to be able to help bring those kinds of people together and just let them mingle and let them get to know each other and let them make friends and let I them had, hug and let them, hug. <laughs> I, I, I had somebody from, uh, that, uh, I just hung out with a, a few weeks ago from the last, uh, workshop that I did in August. And she was, she was telling me how, when she would hang out with people, you know, like in the evenings or at lunch, she figured, you know, she'd meet some interesting people and that there'd be a lot of people that she just wouldn't connect with as well, you know, like any event she goes to. But she said, no, it wasn't like that at all. She said everybody she connected with seemed like a perfect person for her to get to know in, right. in, some, in some fashion or another. So she was just really happy that the, the socializing was so great there. She met some wonderful contacts that were good for her in a variety of ways. Right. So that's, that's, really, that's really cool. And, and when I learned that that was happening, it made me want to put more socializing into the workshop itself, especially to help out some people who are a little more shy, like I used to be, so I can push them <laughs> to do more, you know, more connecting. And they generally appreciate it a lot. Of course, they feel that a little bit of resistance in the beginning, but once they push through that, then by the third day of the workshop, it's like they have yeah, new, it's like, it's new best friends a, again. It's a, it's a com- uh, for some people, it was like a, a complete social transformation. Mm-hmm. You know, from, from day one to day three. Crazy. Yeah, I love I love seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's been a it's been a transformation doing these kinds of workshops too. And just realizing how much fun I could have doing this type of speaking. You know, and looking it's really interesting looking back on my past and remembering how I was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, if I told my past self <laughs> that, that I was, you would be I was doing, doing this that. today, he wouldn't believe me. He would be like, No, <laughs> yeah, right. you're obviously not my future self. <laughs> That is not me. He would probably figure he would be doing some kind of introverted career, like a programmer, engineer, or mathematician, something like that. Last year in um, 
Mother's Day weekend, I went to a retreat up in uh, Harbin, Harbin Hot Springs in Northern California. Uh-huh. And that was all about um, dance, movement, and um, singing. And, and, and it was still, you know, sort of like a, a spiritual growth retreat, you know, and they had pillows and really good food, um, uh-huh. but no hugging. I know. I was so bummed. <laughs> I was like, why aren't we hugging? You know, and I wasn't saying it to people. I was saying it in my head, but I was like, this would be so much better if we were hugging. So um, one of your um, vroom, vroom, veer sort of uh, transitions was, and I didn't know this, you probably said it and I was probably zoned out in one of those <laughs> workshops, but uh, um, growing up, you weren't, you were kind of more touch averse. So oh, yeah. talk a little bit about um, that. What were you like when you were rooming through uh, this touch averse version of Steve, who I can totally not relate to? <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? I don't know who that guy. Well, you know, since I grew up in a fairly mental family, not in terms of like mental illness, but just, you know, very much <laughs> yeah, in their, in their, in their, in their yeah. minds, in their heads and very logical in that way. Uh, there wasn't really much emotional expression, certainly not through touch in our family. Um, and so I, you know, had this association with touch as just something you don't do. It's kind of an alien thing. Mm. Um, I, you know, I wasn't hugged much as a kid. It's like if I did, it would, if I did get hugged, it would be by my grandparents. It would feel, it would be so infrequent and it would feel very uncomfortable. Like okay. when they would, it would come over or something. Um, You're like, what's going on? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Touch, touch in the form of like rough housing for my siblings, yes, but not in the form of like affection or anything like that. Gotcha. You know, not as an expression of love or caring or tenderness. It just really wasn't done. <laughs> um, and, you know, if anything, I probably had a ne- an even more negative association to it. It was like, you know, for me, touch was meant you were being punished or something or you did something wrong. Mm, you, you were know? getting spanked. Yeah, exactly. Uh, not so. Cool. Yeah. So, um, so I I remember you know going through high school, I would see you know some of my male friends. They would have women come up to them and just like hug them as a greeting, or you know talk to them or give them a, a kiss on the cheek and and you yeah. know they'd, and they'd be very touchy, and I'd I'd just be like how what how are they, how are they doing and that? you're like hey that that looks cool because <laughs> like people would never do that with me you know like like women if I knew knew a woman she would never do that with me or a girl my age. And it's like, she would never come up and give me a hug or something. I guess in a way there's people have a sense about that. They can sense if you're a huggy person. And if so, you're likely to get a lot more hugs. And if they sense that you're likely to be resistance, resistant to it, they just don't hug you a lot of the time. And I, I found that out. It seems to be very true later in life, you know, as I got, you know, more through my own transformation and got that kind of sense about other people too. Um, but even when I got to college, I was still very touch averse. I remember one time, uh, uh, one of my classmates, a woman invited me to go study with her and I said, sure. So we go to this, uh, little, little study room, just the two of us are in there by ourselves. And, um, you know, we got our books open and we're going over some of the lessons and stuff. And then she starts touching my forearm, kind of just stroking it kind of sort of gently. And I realized, oh, she has more on her mind than just studying together. Mm. Well, just just the touch that she gave me, you know, which under normal circuit circumstances probably would have been very pleasurable <laughs> and might have opened the door to some kind of cool connection. It gave me you know, an emotional freak out inside and I made an excuse to leave right away. 
And then I honestly, you know, it kind of sucks to say this, but I actually avoided her the whole rest of the semester. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's how bad it was for me. So it's like there was a part of my mind that just couldn't go there, you know, and it's like I couldn't fathom what that would be like to have, you know, that kind of um, touch presence in my life. It was like this alien concept that was just this, uh, this black hole I had to avoid at all costs. So what was the moment where, because this to me is like, a real revelation because I've known you for a long time. And as long as I've known you, you've been, you know, a touch whore. <laughs> as much as I am an attention whore, you are a touch whore. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. That's a little, that's a little uh, over the top, but I don't think you'd disagree. Yeah. You You're know, a cuddle whore. <laughs> I, a cuddle slut. Cuddle uh, slut. There you go. <laughs> I guess a cuddle whore would do it for money, but a cuddle slut does it for free. <laughs> There you go. But you will take payment. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever been paid for it. For, but for a hug. Yeah. I guess I wouldn't be opposed to it. <laughs> um, but, you know, that was, that was a case where I wouldn't say there was one real defining moment. Okay. It was, it was a very gradual progression over a period of years. I, I think it started with a bit of truth, you know, the realization that I was really bad at this. But then just not knowing how to get good at it. So for many years, it was just like, oh, I'm just, you know, not that good at it. Um, and and I just realized that I was bad at it and that was it. <laughs> That's, right. It was just, well, you need that awareness <laughs> first. Yeah. And I, I didn't – but then as I got into personal growth and I thought, oh, there's ways to kind of unravel this. And I, I started uh, pushing myself with some action to – you know, to like introduce more touch in conversation so that I'd be, I'd be talking to somebody and try to touch them on the shoulder. And at first it was so tentative and so awkward because <laughs> I would like put my hand near, you know, near their shoulder and then pull back. I was like, oh, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you see like, that, that movie there? They did that in a movie. Oh, really? Which um, oh, it was the one with, um, Seth Rogen and, um, and the kid from uh, uh, that shaved his head. He had cancer. He was the little kid from uh, Third Rock from the Sun. Uh, his uh, uh, he was going to die of cancer, but he ended up living in the end. He had a psych uh, like a therapist, and she was, was like a. Hmm? Was that fifty fifty? Yes, it was fifty fifty. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, yeah. The 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 lady who ended up being the guy's girlfriend. She was <laughs> she was you know kind of like touch averse and they were, yeah, they, she was very awkward with her comforting touch. Yes. <laughs> Why did you touch me? I I'm supposed that. to. <laughs> right. Yeah, cause, cause she was, cause she was brand new at it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was very much like that, like totally inexperienced and really dorky and lame right, right. and not knowing what I'm doing. <laughs> sure. Um, that's, and that's then where I we start. I kept, you know, I kept practicing um, more and more, and that helped. And gradually, over time, I be I became a lot more comfortable with it. And that made me want to, you know, the fact that I was so bad at it the past in the past, just like with, uh, you know, the physical exercise, and just like uh, with public speaking, it made me want to go even further with it and actually feel like I'd mastered something again that I was once very afraid of or or averse to. And so, you know, eventually I started pushing myself to do a lot of hugs and that actually, you know, one, one thing that pushed me to become a lot more huggy was a guy named, uh, Don Buckings. I know yeah, you, yeah. you, you met him, you know, he yeah, went yeah. to, 
he went to my first workshop in 2009 and he was not a huggy guy when he first came to the workshop or so he told me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he said, you know, he's from, he's from Belgium and he just said it wasn't a very huggy culture. I think he was 26 years old at the time. Right. And he, he got into uh, one of the workshop exercises. One of the challenges I gave people was to go out and see if you could get a random hug or a hug from a random stranger in five minutes or less. So you go out and, and this, you know, we were at the uh, Harris Hotel on the Strip at the time. And so you can go to the casino or go out on the Strip and just start start a conversation with somebody and see if you can get a willing hug from them in, in five minutes or less. It was just a fun challenge for some people who wanted to do an extra challenge. Uh, and he and he went with it and got it, you know, uh, he came back and said he got two hugs in one minute from two people in an elevator. Wow. And there, and there was somebody else from the workshop there as a witness too, you know, who could corroborate his story. And then he, <laughs> then he kept going with it and he got it down to like 45 seconds and then he got down to 15 seconds and then he went back to Belgium and kept practicing and he eventually said, told me uh, by email that he could do it in just like one second. Now, I wow. said, what? So, so he was going to come to the, a workshop a year later, the October 2010 one, which was the Halloween workshop we did. Mm-hmm. Were you at that one too? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And he was Dr. Evil. He was Dr. Evil because during that time he had got diagnosed with cancer. Right. Um, and he had a big tumor in the center of his chest and so he was going through treatments for that. And he, but he became a very, very huggy person and he was going around giving hugs to everybody, but he wasn't like that a year earlier, which was really cool, cool to see. Um, and then he went out with a group of us, uh, to downtown Las Vegas and he would just go up and, uh, walk up to people with his arms out and a big smile on his face. And about half the people he did that to would hug him. Yeah. And I thought, wow, (laughs) you know, here's like somebody who's really, gone far with that in, in a relatively short period of time. And that inspired me. And so, um, you know, that, 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 that inspired me to want to do more hugs at, at my workshops. And so you know, later, as I was doing workshops, instead of shaking people's hands, as I greet them, when they would show up, I would just offer everybody a hug. And, and that really changed the energy of the event. It, it made totally. me feel a lot happier and more comfortable there. And I also encouraged the staff members to do it. And a lot of people give each other hugs. So, you know, many people were getting five or six hugs before they even got to their seat. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I got would... three. <laughs> Aw. <give> <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm chronically early. It's that military uh, programming. So, I think for the next workshop, we have like four staff members now at least. So you should get at least five, including me, you should get at least five hugs before you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Cool. Um, but it, it really changed the nature of the events I would do, um, you know, offering everybody it hugs. It does. You know, because like- it feels much more warm that first morning, which is often cold a bit otherwise. Like, and it takes down barriers too. Makes people feel a little more comfortable. Even the people who aren't as comfortable being hugged, they do seem to warm up to it after a while, and they they often like it. When, yeah, it, it's almost like you need this sort of like tipping point. It's like a herd immunity sort of situation. <laughs> yeah, it's like as soon as everybody's doing it, then everybody's doing it, right? Mm-hmm. So, but but with the this this last workshop was the first time you had you know staff people hugging on the way in, and it definitely it it changed the the tone. It, it accelerated the, the um, like w- what you said, the, that growth herd sort of like the herd hugging happened a lot, <laughs> a lot quicker yep. a, as you initiated it, 
Right. You you also get you know now that that was that was my tenth workshop now last last year. So right. now there's a lot of repeat people coming back, um, and so and we they have a lot know of, already. Right. Usually, like half the people at each workshop now are alumni from previous events, uh, as opposed to first timers. Right. So that's that's kind of nice because then it becomes more like a family reunion for them. Where they're yeah. all coming back and that's saying awesome. hi, see, seeing old friends, and it has that fun that fun energy, uh, and that's that's been really cool to do that type of transformation. What's really interesting too is that Don passed away in 2011, right? And yet he continued to inspire people to be very huggy, and people would post things on his Facebook page. I don't know if it's still active now, but for years after he passed away, it, it people were going, still posting. Huh? Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's still online, but I remember like even years after he passed away, people were posting like happy birthday messages to him and yeah, yeah. T- telling him that he inspired inspired them. Uh, so it wasn't just you know when he. When he did that transformation for himself, it wasn't just about him. He transformed me and a lot of other people to become more huggy and more uh, affection-minded uh, and, and you know, reaching out and, co- and connecting in ways that feel good to people. It's not something you force on people, but I find you know, quite often people really like it. We have a lot of social walls and barriers to touch and so on. And yeah. of course, there's inappropriate times where you're not going to do that. Right. But for the most part, uh, people really – like it and it, it makes them happier you'll, you'll um, if we like can just this. get past the bear you know the the the, wa- the walls that we have to connecting in that way when i went to massage school um they they had this same thing i mean it was a hug hello kind of environment mm-hmm. and uh at least at least once a month or more i think they the goal was once a week everybody in the school would would do a hug fest it would be it would be you know there's two main rooms you know mm-hmm. class a class b and uh right at the end of class like one one class would line up and the other class would come over and and do a hug line <laughs> <laughs> so it was amazing yeah yeah and that's that was another reason why and that makes sense in massage school because you're trying to get everybody over themselves about touch hmm you know, so it, it, I, yeah, I guess you wouldn't be a very good, uh, massage therapist if you have a therapist, if you're, if you're (laughs) resistant to touching people. Yeah. And and it's weird. Strangely enough, a lot of people were, huh? I would have thought if you signed up for school like that, then you would, well, you know, a lot of those, a lot of those folks are 18 years old and their parents are just making them do something. So there's (laughs) that. Yeah. Yeah. Go get a job kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Get out of the house, go do something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then, some people don't, you know, don't have this whole, cause you actually, you know, if you start, there's like two phases. Um, and one was the Shiatsu Eastern style of massage and mm-hmm. that, you know, the whole thing, it, the whole session is closed on, um, in Western it's more Swedish. That's not <laughs> so like within a month of starting your Western segment, you're like taking your clothes off in class. yeah see and even you you're like (laughs) so there's this whole thing where they've got to get you really comfortable with a group really fast i mean Mm -hmm. and then you're you're, you've got to do this weird thing where you're wrapping yourself in uh in a sheet and then getting undressed in in a corner kind of thing um yeah so anyway (laughs) what a great experience that was 
So did that make you more comfortable with touch then too? Where, oh, I mean, totally. did you have any resistance to it in the beginning? Uh, did you have yeah, any, yeah, I was, I, you know, me and touch, um, was, it just wasn't done mm-hmm. a lot. I was never one of those, uh, one of those people in high school or a school at all that was huggy. Um, now with my family, my family, you know, the women would hug, not so much guys, um, but you know, like aunts and cousins and, you know, mom, uh, yeah, lots of hugging and I was okay with it, but it was, it was just never, uh, outside of family, unless it was like a really close friend or a girlfriend, it was always like there was a, an extra bubble of, are we, are we at the hug level? You know, that's just totally arbitrary. And once you've blown past that and just decide to hug, hello, <laughs> it, it really does serve to break, you know, it's just like anything else in the physical world. It's this imaginary barrier that we've made up. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, you know, I've learned, I've learned that pretty much I can always do it, but now I don't always, you know, always do it when I'm meeting somebody new, but you know, I've learned that I can do it. I can offer it. And just going past the point where I felt like was too much, uh, was a good experience for me. Like I remember meeting with a, uh, you know, a publisher I've worked with for a number of years. I went to their headquarters and, you know, I hugged everybody there in their office, like 15 people or something, uh, as we went, you know, they gave me a tour of their offices. So every person I met, I just offered them a hug. And some people were like, Oh great. You like hugs. You know, you're a hugger too. They loved that. Yeah. Uh, mostly some people most, say no, mostly women. And then other people were like, what? Somebody's hugging me. Like they're, right, you know, right, right. like, they're, like their web guy is <laughs> like, what? <laughs> You know, Leave me like, alone. But somebody's hugging me, but it's like still he's still hugged. You know, oh, okay. so I thought, okay, it's like I think in all the years I've been offering people hugs, I think only one one person ever turned it down. Wow. You know, like just one, and that was that was a, a woman who uh, had a, a headscarf on. Um, mm, okay, and that was in London, <laughs> not to hug his not the hug his society, but <laughs> no. But, you know, I even, I even, you know, have done it where I've encouraged people, you know, like it's surprising how open people are to hugs when you give them permission to. I remember speaking at an event in Berlin with, uh, there were like 25, you know, German guys, um, most of them fairly in their minds in in the the room, engineer types. yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. At a, at a dating conference so they could learn dating skills and, um, I think there may be three women in the room or something. And I had the whole room as an exercise, get up and hug each other. And the funny thing is after they got to hugging for a few minutes, I couldn't get them to stop. <laughs> I was like, like, okay, take your seats. They're like, no, no, we want to keep hugging. I'm like, okay. Just like a bunch of German guys all hugging each other. You know? And I was like, I, people told me you're never going to get the Germans to hug, you know, forget that. And I was like, nope, they, it's, it's just the opposite in a society that makes it, um, you know, more repressed. It just means that the touch when it comes out, people want permission to do it. They like it. Yeah. It's nice to finally have permission to, to do, to do that kind of thing. It was, it, that was an interesting thing for me when we did the hug fest in downtown Las Vegas during the last workshop, mm-hmm. just seeing the reactions of the bystanders walking by whom we were attempting to hug. <laughs> yep. Um, because there was, there was the whole gambit of people that, saw other people hugging and saw the signs, right? And immediately mm-hmm. went, oh, I can hug, mm-hmm. right? And they didn't, they hardly needed any permission at all. Exactly. Right. Just- and then, and then there was the other people that would hesitate. Mm-hmm. They would be like, 
what's going on? Why does he have his arms open? <laughs> you know, and then and then they would look around and they would see the signs and other people hugging and they're like, oh, he's not crazy. Oh, I can get a hug. And, yeah. then, and then other people would just be like, give you that look and just keep walking. Steer way around you. <laughs> exactly. 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 Just, you know, like, oh, right, nobody's touching me. Nobody's touching. They've got an uh, impenetrable wall. <laughs> and they yeah. would even actually like, it was like my energy was pushing their bubble away. <laughs> like you said. Yep. Yeah. I, I also noticed that once people got a few hugs on, under their belt, like from our group, then the energy of the whole of the whole group rose up, and more people you could feel it. It's like it became much more comfortable to hug. Yeah, uh, you could see it in the video of the, of the hug fest too. Like in the first thirty seconds, it looks more tentative uh, as people are starting to hug, and then at the end, it gets more and more crazy. And you know, then then it's like people are picking each other up and spinning each other in circles and stuff. And yeah, well, <laughs> you know, and, and hugging was contagious too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah as, I, I, as basically there was this big mob. And it was a kind of a general circle-ish shape. But it, when I couldn't find a bystander to hug, I would hug my way through the, the mob <laughs> to the other side to see if I could find somebody new. But I thought if I would, if I would hug my way through, you know, it would, it would try to kind of like add to the contagion of hug. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. So- it's it's really quite rewarding, you know, when you can look back on your past and see you used to be a certain way or there's something that made you feel inadequate or just something you wanted to get better at or something you're afraid of and then knowing that you can actually put into it. And sometimes it takes really years, you know, of, of nudging yourself. But if you keep making progress, you look back, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and you just see massive transformation. It's like black and white. You, you realize you've become a different person and you, you've made yeah. yourself into someone more that you want to be. I, I, you know, I find it really rewarding every time I speak now because of the context I came from. It's, it's like a validation of what I teach too, you know, teaching people about personal growth. I know it works because I've been through a number of these types of transformations uh, myself. And I know it's like we're not stuck with how we are you know, as a, as a kid or in high school or in college or whatever, we can, we can, you know, learn new skills socially, physically. Yeah. Um, you've got a, mentally, growth, emotionally. a growth mindset. You're like, well, I am an introvert and therefore I must meet these, or I am touch averse and therefore this is, I am fixed and I won't change. You know, yep. that's, that's a fixed mindset versus obviously you're like the most growth mindset person on the planet. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> at, <laughs> no. least, at least in, in, in the top 100. <laughs> but the, the, you know, the changes really show up when you, when you have something really obvious to validate it, you know, like being able to get up in front of, in front of an audience on a stage, do a three day workshop. That's you can record a, it. That's, yeah. that's a very clear goal. It's like not a fuzzy thing that, you know, right. you, you could say, oh, yeah, I'm over my fear of public speaking, but yet you never speak. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, oh, oh, I, I could, yeah, I could do that. I wouldn't be afraid to do that. I can it's hug like, 100 people in an hour. Sure. Yeah. Well, have go, you done it? <laughs> well, go do that. Right. And I, I found that especially as I lean more and more into things that I once was afraid of, then fear, it, it's like there's a systemic effect. It's like fear goes down across the board. Like last year, I went skydiving for the first time, and it was just easy. It was fun, and I really wasn't particularly nervous or afraid to do it, whereas probably back when I was in more of my fear phase, that would have been a big, big deal to do. And it's funny talking to a lot of other people and, and seeing how you know, people my age, they're terrified to go skydiving, and they're like, I could never do that. 
I'm just right. like, why not? Why not? It's just, you know, jumping out of an airplane. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Why it's, not? It's, it's a it's a passive thing, you know. Lots of people do it. You, you mostly just fall. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Gravity, gravity does all the work. It just takes you know you're on the ground like I don't know five or six minutes after you jump out of the plane. It's not it's that pretty, big a deal. It's a pretty big rush though. It, yeah, it, it 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 can be pretty fun. You know when the all the air is whizzing by and it's cold. <laughs> How now? I've heard that af- the after effect lasts a while. You get a really huge like. I don't know what it would be like an adrenaline kind of like uh, amped. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I I heard that too. People told me that before they went, but I think maybe that lasted a day, a day and a half or so. That's pretty good though. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it was, it was exciting. It was like, we were really amped up, uh, you know, Rochelle and I I I thought you were going to be like an hour, you know? Oh, you were amped up for an hour after, but you said a day. No, but like some people gave me the impression that it would last for two weeks. Oh, no. (laughs) I was like, after a couple of days, it's okay. It's back back to normal again. Right, right. But I think maybe it's a bigger transformation if you have a lot more fear going into it. Yeah, that makes then sense. It's, then it gives you a bigger sense of accomplishment. Sure. Yeah. So you've done a lot of you, – you kind of like veer all the time now. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And, and the last time we talked, whenever you have things going nice, then you break them. So you're, you're <laughs> yeah, that to me is that. like, uh, is like, uh, you want to sort of like commit to being living your life as an improvisation. Yeah. That's, you know, one way to think about it. It's, I, I guess it's that I get so much reward out of the growth experience itself. Uh, I don't get much reward out of having stuff or accomplishing, you know, certain things like making a certain amount of money doesn't really matter to me. Right. Um, I'm not even that it's like growing a business is not that big a deal to me, but I like going through um, personal transformation experiences, like taking something that I was no good at and finally becoming good at it. And then also enjoying the experience of being able to teach that and share that experience with other people. To me, that's especially rewarding. And so I just like seeking out experiences like that again and again and again. The big one coming up now is, is uh, going through a transformation where my girlfriend, Rochelle and I want to, basically travel around the world and downsize all our possessions to essentially what'll fit in like a carry-on bag and a laptop bag. That's great. And just to like, tr- you know, travel for, for quite a while. Um, and, and, you know, another challenge I'd been doing, which I've already pretty much done quite a bit of, was, uh, you know, seeing how much I could travel just for, for free without having to pay for a place to stay. Oh, awesome. uh, Sort of like couch surfing, but just going from invitation to invitation and, and, you know, finding out like I could not only get free trips to Europe by like getting a speaking invitation there and having meet people and I would get invitations to go visit with them or stay with them. And I would just like hopscotch from one invitation to the next to the next. And I would go travel for four or five weeks, you know, in Europe, never paying for a place to stay, just going from one invitation like, oh, you can stay with us for a few days. And oh, here you can stay over, stay, stay here for a week. And, and uh, just having a lot of fun with that. So are you planning on selling your house? Or are you gonna- yes. Oh, you are? Yes. Okay. Yeah, this year I would like to now that it's, you know, the housing prices have finally come back up a decent bit. Right, right, right. Yeah. I'm I'm with you. Yep. Actually, yeah, that's cool. Um, and and it's awesome that uh, that you've got uh, your girlfriend that wants to do that with you. Mm-hmm. And you guys, she's, she's already doing it now. In fact, oh uh, really? She, she no longer. Ha- I mean, other than being able to stay at my house right now, she no longer has a stable place to stay. So she's currently in Paris. She'll be there another um, little over two weeks, okay. and then she, then she'll be coming back to Vegas. So she's been 
she's been traveling through Europe since uh, I think like January nine. Uh huh. So she's been there quite a while now. <laughs> I've often wondered about that. Can you like just keep traveling indefinitely? I, I guess you can. You never have to like go home. Right. Yeah. Your passport oh. stays good. You, well, you're, you are a, limited to like a 90 day stay on a, on a gonna, tourist visa, right? We're essentially going to be homeless. So we, you know, we won't have a stable home, but there's, there's some people I know who've done this for years. Um, right. One I know has been over 10 years and absolutely loves it. And I find that the people who love it most are the ones that do it fairly slowly. Like they'll go to one city and stay there for two or three months mm-hmm. and then pick another city and go there for a while. That way they can kind of get into a routine Instead of, you know, the ones who get burned out are the ones who are switching cities every few days or every week. Yeah, that's too much moving. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I often thought of it as like a lily pad sort of thing Uh Um, where, you know, you're not constantly on the road, but you don't have a house, but you've got say like, we like this place and we'll be uh, Airbnb it or stay with friends or whatever Uh it takes to be there, you know, during this time of year. And then we'll go and see her family during this time of year. And then we'll go see my family, you know, when the weather's not, you know, frozen tundra. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Airbnb is great too. We love Airbnb because you could get a place to stay pretty quickly in a, in a you know, good part of town. And um, Rochelle's staying in one right now in Paris. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So is it, do you want to use like couch surfing first? And then if you can't do that, then Airbnb it and. No, because I don't really like sleeping on a couch. <laughs> ah, okay. All right. Yeah, well, yeah. 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 I mean, it's kind of like we like having our own place a little bit. So Airbnb is great because at least you get your own room or maybe your own little apart- tiny apartment or something okay. uh, to stay in, which is kind of nice. And, you know, if we need to, we'll do hotels, but. I often like staying with other people. So staying in a house with some local is, is kind of nice or visiting with friends who have a spare room, get right. a lot of invitations like that. Or a spare uh, house. <laughs> yep. I, I feel uh, pretty much equally as comfortable, you know, s- traveling like couch surfing or Airbnb style as I do staying in a five-star hotel. It's uh, it's just a different type of experience. Cool. So when do you want to sell the house and start that full time? Well, I want to work on that this summer. So okay. it depend, depends on how long it takes to, to sell it. But right, right. basically my plan was to start you know, getting it ready to sell in June. Wow. That's funny because I recorded a little, uh, a little intro not knowing what we were going to talk about. And I uh-huh. said, I know he's really in the travel now and he wants to – he's in the process of selling all of his possessions. Is he selling his house? I think he's going to sell his house. We'll have to ask him. And I guess <laughs> – <laughs> That's cool. So maybe you might have to rent it out, do a rent to sale thing or. Uh, no, I would just, I mean, basically I'll just start with the travel when the house gets sold. So that's kind of, Oh, okay. All that's right. That's basically my limiting step. Oh, okay. So, yeah. It's not a, a deadline for me or a rush thing. So. Gotcha. Um, once you've got, once you got it sold, then, then yeah. you know, you're on the road then. Whether it sells in two days or takes months, you know, whatever it takes, then I'll just go after it's done and, uh, gradually, you know, downsize along the way, depending on how much time is left. I've already downsized uh, a bunch of stuff already, you know, donated things to charity and stuff and cleaned out the garage and just, you know, getting ready to make that kind of transition. And also in my mind, I'm telling myself, okay, don't acquire any new, any new stuff. Don't get new big things. Minimal stuff. Yeah. Don't buy big new possessions because you're just going to have to get rid of them later. So (laughs) partly it's just getting into that mindset that was, that was really um, helpful, but that's a big 
kind of scary transition too. Um, you know, as when I grew up, I'd never been outside the USA. Um, the, the first time I went to, um, I guess like really outside the USA didn't start until I was in my late thirties. So it was, it's kind of nice to, you know, be more comfortable with that. I feel like I'm still pretty new at it. I've been to 10 different countries now, uh, gradually getting there, but there's still, you know, whole continents I haven't been to yet. So sure. I really want to get out there and, and uh, explore more and see more of the world and, and learn about different cultures. So for me, it's very much something I'm doing for personal reasons, just as a learning experience. Yeah. My wife and I both want to move. We have, we have wonderlust. We're addicted to moving from the Air Force. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Did you move around a lot when you were in the Air Force? Yeah, yeah. And we got really good at it. So I, you know, I started out in uh, Michigan, and that's where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, there's this whirlwind of, okay, you take a bus to Milwaukee, and then we flew to Texas, and then Texas was the eight weeks of basic training. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit of leave back in Michigan, and then Keesler, Mississippi, for another eight weeks of more training, I think it was. And then I went to Japan for two years. So that was awesome. 18-year-old in Japan. (laughs) Uh, And then from there, we went Mm -hmm. to Hawaii. And that's where I met Yayoi. And uh, we got married in Mm -hmm. Hawaii. Uh, From Hawaii, we went to Florida. And we were in Florida for about four years. And then from there, we went to England. And England was great because that opened up the travel door to Europe. You know, so then we got to do all the different Europe, European travel, uh, lots of Amsterdam and France and oosh, geez, Germany and uh, Salzburg and um, did the Sound of Music tour. It was great. It was awesome. And then uh, and then we went back to wait a minute. I screwed that up. First, we went to <laughs> Japan and then we went to England. Uh-huh. So, so from Florida, we went back to Japan. Awesome. Lots of skiing. And then England. And then from England, then here. And I've been here way too long. Since 2003. Yeah. <laughs> 2003. Yeah, that is a long stretch. We've got way too stuck. That's long. Yeah, that's longer than I've ever been in like one particular right. place right. For, for quite a while. At least. Yeah. It's, I think I might have been here longer than I was in Michigan, which is crazy. It's getting close. Not quite. Anyway. Time to move. <laughs> <laughs> or, get, or get on the move. Yes. Get on um, the move. I need to move. To, to me, it's just a temporary thing. And I, I guess it's, you know, it sort of aligns with the, the same dynamic of taking something that I was no good at, like just not feeling very worldly. You know, I remember just the, when I was finally taking my first trip to Europe, which was in 2011, it felt daunting, like this really big thing. You know, like, wow. There's a passport. and Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's terrorists out there. You have to get on a plane for like 10 or 12 hours. I might, I might get lost or, you know. Yeah. And they speak other languages there. <laughs> yeah. It just, it just felt, it felt like such a foreign thing to do. And, and, if, and I felt such, you know, so inexperienced that I don't know what I'm doing. So, you know, finally Rochelle and I got together like, okay, of all the cities in the world, I, you know, I asked her, where do you want to go to most? And she said, Paris. And I said, me too. I said, well, wow, perfect. I, I said, I said, if we both have the same city, we both want to go to, let's just do it. Let's go to Paris. And she said, okay. And I said, no, you don't get it. Let's go to Paris. Like now let's just make it happen. Let's do it as quickly as possible. And let's just go. And so we, you know, clear our schedules and we, uh, six days later we were in Paris 
the best fastest we could you know book wow. book, book a flight without paying an extraordinarily crazy amount and also right. uh, um, you know we got an uh, we rented an apartment there and you know, it took a little while for everything to go through on that so basically as fast as we could put it together <laughs> and have a place to stay when we landed we worked it out and then we, uh, and we spent two weeks there and we just had an amazing time and after I went there once I was like what was the big deal this right. is not that difficult <laughs> right you know right and everybody just, speaks English in Paris <laughs> it's just a city yeah it's that's, just a city it's not that big of a deal and I, I, I did you probably had of, to get like on like two planes maybe uh, yeah, two or two. actually, no, we had a direct flight. I think the first time we went there direct from La- flight, wow. I think we had, I think we flew direct from Las Vegas to Paris, which is kind of unusual. Cause usually, usually I usually go through, Heathrow usually I end something. up taking yeah. three planes to get right. to whatever city I'm going to when I go there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, it was, it was just a really cool, you know, fun experience. And yes, it had that foreign element to it, but you know, it was very friendly. We had, we just oh, yeah. had, you know, a very friendly experience the whole way through. And Parisians are just like any other big city people. You know, I, now I look at that as like, uh, cause I was kind of like country mouse, city mouse growing up. I I came from Mm -hmm. the country. Um, and the first thing I noticed that was different about city people is, is they're moving at a higher frequency. And, Mm -hmm. and so country people think that that's, that means they're rude and they're not, they're just going faster than you. And they're easily annoyed by your country weight. <laughs> by your slow southern drawl. Exactly. In, in my case, I sounded a little bit like I was from Fargo or something there. Yeah. <laughs> God, you betcha. Yeah. yeah, you betcha there. Yeah. Eh? <laughs> well, this has been great. You know, we've been going way too long. You know, this okay, is supposed yeah, we're to be. An, rambling now. Yeah, yeah. We're probably rambling on now. So let's do this again. We'll put you down for a reattack. So before your next workshop, after this one, we'll get together again and do another show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Steve, for doing this. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's a lot of fun. All right. Hasta la vista. <laughs> Baby. Baby. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V double E-R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer. Hey, you know, the show's over. (laughs) Uh, Hey, you, you're still here. Uh, And uh, guess what? There's a bonus. Uh, Steve and I actually talked for over two hours. So this was already a long show, a little too long. Um, So the bonus content was a little rambly and uh, not really meant for consumption. Um, We just kept talking and uh, I kind of started recording again anyway. So if you are into that sort of uh, rambling conversation, then some of this is fun. Some of it is a little rambly. Uh, You know, it consume at your... uh, your own peril. <laughs> uh, I think some of it's fun and some of it's a little tedious. So, uh, you know, there you go. You have been warned. There is a secret bonus that is linked in the show notes area. Uh, it won't be in the feed.
Um, unless, of course, you ask me to put it in the feed. And if enough of you ask me to put it in the feed, maybe someday I will put it in the feed. But as of now, I'll just upload it and put a link in the show notes and say, here's some bonus rambling. Enjoy. Shh. Thank you, Chris Brogan. I love you.